Would you pray with me? Lord God in heaven, speak your words of life into your people. May none of my words be amiss, but may they be on the market in concert with what your Holy Spirit has planned for today. In the name of Christ, do we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We're now fully immersed in the Epiphany season, which is about the far-reaching light of Christ. Eric talked about that last week. The grand, glorious redemption vision of God. Here's a Messiah who not only saves Israel, but he's going to free all peoples, all nations, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So God is, has a cosmic scope. Epiphany means manifestation, okay? Manifestation of God. And the picture of it in the Western church is the story of the three magi, the three wise men, that story that we know. The core theme of Epiphany is God making himself known to the Gentiles. You probably heard that in the readings. You probably heard that in the songs. God drawing all people to himself, all people. God's plan birthed in Judaism, it doesn't reach full fruition until it makes its way to us Gentiles. That's most of us here, probably. That's why the Epiphany season is often connected with mission. It's a season that we often focus on mission. Great season to seek and ask the Lord, Lord, where, where are you moving? Where are you working? Where can we join you in those places? Okay, that's mission. Great timing for our annual meeting next week. If I can put a little plug there. Uh, today we're going to explore a fundamental piece of epiphany, God's manifestation of himself in the baptism of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke 3 mainly, mainly focusing on the last two verses, 21 and 22. I'm also going to pull from Matthew 3 and John 1 because they bring, they fill in some gaps that uh, Luke doesn't. So I want us to have a really full or picture of the baptism of Jesus, okay? So Luke 3, 21 and 22 mainly, but pulling from Matthew uh, 3 and John 1. Now lest we forget here, let's do some background. There's a familial and a relational connection between Jesus and John the Baptist, you might recall, they're cousins, okay? So the Gospels offer little in terms of details about their 30 years of shared history, but there's no doubt they're familiar with each other. When we encounter them in the Scriptures, they're not just strangers, okay, these two people that meet for the first time. Even though John grew up in the hill country of Judah, that's kind of in the sticks, and Jesus grew up in Galilee, that's a, a small town, their families would have stayed connected to some degree, perhaps in the three annual feasts held in Jerusalem, which they'd make pilgrimages back for. Family was really essential in Jewish culture. Think of how Mary and Elizabeth shared the stories of their pregnancies with each other. Remember that? Mary confides in Elizabeth about her miraculous pregnancy, and what does John do? He leaps in her womb, okay? It's doubtful that Elizabeth would have kept the nature of Jesus' birth a secret from John, who himself was a pretty miraculous baby. So these are the kinds of stories that families share. They tell and they retell them, don't they? Especially with, when you're talking about moms and their kids. Okay? So even if Jesus and John, the picture I want you to have, even if they weren't close on a day-to-day -day basis, which they probably were not, it's safe to assume that they weren't total strangers to one another. Okay? So there's a depth with come, that comes with that 30 years of shared family history. So that's there. Okay? So in the Matthew 3 account, which I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, there's a significant back and forth before Jesus is even baptized. Luke just sort of gets to the point. Well, Matthew 3 gives us some, some uh, prologue as to what happens before the baptism, and it's key. So I'm going to summarize and comment on that a little bit as we go along. Now, first, there's the obvious irony, which John is struggling with. 
Here he is in the Jordan River with his cousin Jesus, and John is seeing his need for baptism. He's the one confessing. Now, usually it's the other way around. When people come to John the Baptist, they're usually the ones confessing, right? But here's John. No, Lord, I need to be baptized by you. I'm not fit to untie your sandals. These, all, all those lines come to, come to mind. He's clearly torn with the irony and the role reversal of the situation. I'm not worthy to do this. So he tries to deter Jesus. He tries to steer him away from it. No, this isn't right. This is, this is just all backwards. But Jesus gently is going to press past John's defenses in Matthew 3. He says, let it be so now. So Jesus tenderly commands John to permit the baptism, okay? It's as if Jesus agrees with John's conclusions. He doesn't disagree with John's observation about who should baptize who. He doesn't say, oh, no, come on, you're wrong. It's all good. He doesn't do that. But he's not going to be dissuaded. Jesus sees the whole picture, okay? And what's at stake? Comment more on that later. John cannot see the deeper reasons for why it is right and good for him to baptize Jesus. It's kind of reminiscent of Peter in John 13 when the washing of the disciples' feet. You remember this story? Uh, the Lord's washing all the disciples' feet. comes to Simon Peter. Lord, you're going to wash my feet too. Yes, Peter, uh, you don't know what I'm doing now, but you're going to understand it later. No, you can never wash my feet, but Peter... Peter, tut, tut, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, well, then wash all of me, which has interesting baptismal uh, implications there, but that's another sermon. So it's a little reminiscent of that back and forth with uh, Peter and Jesus, this one with John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, the why for Jesus' baptism, the big why, here's, what Jesus, here's the answer Jesus gives. For it's proper, or it says, or it's fitting for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was presented in the temple according to the law. He was circumcised in adherence to the law. He was raised under the law. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He seeks to fulfill the law. Now, John's baptism was one of confession and repentance. So why would baptism be necessary for Jesus? Does Jesus have any sins to confess? Anybody ever take a crack at that one? Nope. Answer's no. Repentance needed for Jesus? Nope. You see a trend? <laughs> Cleansing of his sins. Nope. 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 Jesus did not need to be baptized for the reasons that we do. So why is this fitting in his eyes? Jesus' answer is surprisingly straightforward. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is working with and in obedience to the will of the Father. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to perfectly fulfill it to go above and beyond what any human could do. The book of Hebrews and countless other passages describe this. That's why he's called the second Adam. I think we heard that in one of the songs we just sang. It's a divine redo. The point of his baptism, the big why, is primarily one of, underscore this word, identification. Identification, okay? The heart of why he took on flesh in the incarnation. He identified himself with us. Jesus is baptized to show his solidarity with us. Okay? That's why he's baptized. The sinless one who would be baptized by a sinner. Okay? With no sins to confess, Jesus voluntarily identifies himself with the people he came to save. And it makes sense when you think of who Jesus spends time with. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the poor, Samaritans, people in need of him just like you and me. So John eventually consents and lets Jesus baptize him. Now, he doesn't grasp all the reasons, notice, and he doesn't understand everything. 
but he obeys. And maybe it's better to say that he yields and says, okay, Jesus, we'll do this. Now, there's a good surprise in store for John. I love this. In John 1, the Lord gave him a promise and a sign. He said, the one who the dove comes down on, that's the one. That's the Messiah. That's the assurance to John. But look at the pattern. Faith and trust is asked of him first. The sign, the dove, comes after John baptizes Christ. So that kind of preaches to us, doesn't it? You step in faith first, and the provision follows. Okay? That's one to asterisk, because that plays out in our lives and in Scripture. Okay, that's a lot of filling in of the gaps. Let's get to the actual baptism in Luke 3, 21 to 22. And as he, as Jesus was praying, heaven opened up. Now the baptisms occurred. And as he was praying, heaven opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove in bodily form. Okay, Again, this all follows the baptism. The picture is Jesus is praying almost as he's coming up out of the water. That's where some translations go. Isn't that a magnificent picture, right? He comes up out of the water. He's praying. The heavens open. The dove comes down. I mean, Luke's account is a very intimate scene with two vantage points. It's kind of what Jesus and maybe John see and then what the larger crowd experiences. And God the Father's affirmation of Jesus is impossible to miss. There's two parts to it. There's a sign, the dove, and then there's words. So you uh, sacramental nerds and geeks amongst me, God bless you, isn't that cool? How sacramental is that? Our definition in the Anglican world of a sacrament is an outward and visible sign, dove, of an inward and spiritual reality, okay? So signs and words is how God the Father speaks a two-part yes over Jesus and his calling. Let's talk about those two pieces. The first part, the visible sign, the dove. Okay, this is the anointing and affirmation, and Jesus is commissioning as the Messiah. This is God's yes. The dove, the Holy Spirit, descends upon Jesus to drive the point home. This is the promise and the fulfillment of Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, dot, dot, dot. Now, the dove, let me tell you a little bit about that. The dove is the only bird permitted as a sacrifice under the Levitical sacrificial system. Now, here's the thing, though. It's reserved for the poorest of the poor. So if you couldn't afford a lamb, you got a dove. Now, do you think it's a mere chance that the symbol of Jesus' baptism was a lowly, humble, poor one? I don't think so. I think there's a connection there. Usually the Holy Spirit shows up as fire, uh, but notice how gentle and common this symbol is, right? It's like the Lord hovering over the deep in Genesis 1, verse 2. All four evangelists mention the descent of the dove in the form of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Luke makes the point, the dove in bodily form. And what he means there is everybody can see it. It's there. Everyone can see it and behold it. But that might be all the crowd saw and heard. The baptism, Jesus praying, the dove descending. Now, there's another level where, and this is just a little aside, just a little, uh, the symbolism might be puzzling. The dove was not an accepted symbol of the Holy Spirit yet. So it may be, it's familiar to us, right? We hear dove, we go, oh, Holy Spirit, yeah, sure, sure. But at this point in time, it wasn't. In Scripture and tradition up to this point, the dove tended to stand for Israel. Interesting. Maybe another point of identification? I don't know. I leave that to you. Okay, so part one, the visible sign, the dove. Okay? Part two, God the Father's words. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This is... 
the father's unequivocal yes. Now, it's interesting. There's no mention of the crowds hearing or reacting to this. I find that fascinating. The dove, yes, it's in bodily form. They see it. Uh, Jesus certainly hears God the Father's voice. Maybe John does as well. I'm unsure. I'm not staking a claim here. I'm just posing some questions. These words might have been reserved just for Jesus. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we're an audience to these words, and so that's enough, I think, for us to move forward now. Now, let's remember the baptismal pattern. Typically, when people come to John the Baptist, they confess their sins. That's how it works. Well, this is really turned topsy-turvy. The voice of Jesus' baptism is a confession of a father's love and delight over him, his, his beloved son. So this is a different kind of confession. Do these words sound familiar, these affirm, this affirmation? Are we going to hear this again? Does this boomerang maybe in, say, Matthew 17, transfiguration? Sure enough, it does. This is my son whom I love. This is from Matthew 17. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And in this addendum, listen to him. Okay. This time there are three others that hear God the Father's voice, Peter, James, and John. That's perhaps why we have this addition at the end of the line, listen to him. Now, Jesus' baptism is a coronation ceremony. You need to see this as a new kind of king is anointed. You need to see it that way. The pattern of how the kings of Israel were chosen is that God spoke his choice to the prophets, and the prophets then went and anointed the king. This is what happened to Samuel and David. John the Baptist, Fred made this point, I think, a few weeks ago, is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is anointing the final king. He's anointing the final king of kings. This is the inauguration of the mediator of a new covenant. So no greater endorsement than this. God Almighty's yes, anointing a new king. Now there's another layer to this anointing, this coronation that's going on. We have to pull back from John 1 to, to hear what's going on here. Remember, remember that scene where John sees Jesus and he points him out and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that part? Okay. Well, a lamb is selected for slaughter, it must first be deemed acceptable. It's got to be pure and without defect. But it's then separated, it's consecrated, set apart from the rest of the flock for ministry. So this coronation, this anointing, here at the outset of Jesus' ministry, his baptism sets him apart for sacrifice. The anointed king is also the lamb of God, okay? The one true final sacrifice for our sins. So his baptism is also a ceremonial selection of the Lamb of God, the servant king. Now, it's really hard to miss how God is in such full view in this passage. I mean, do you hear how strongly Trinitarian this is? I mean, look at this. You have the affirming voice of God the Father speaking pleasure, delight, affirmation over Jesus the Son, okay, the servant Messiah king, as the Holy Spirit rests upon him as a clear symbol of God the Father's yes. All of God is at work to save all of us, every part. Now, folks, epiphanies of this sort are kind of rare in Scripture. So this is a big deal, the fullness of God on display. God shows up in full force. So this is key. This is important. So an epiphany indeed, yeah, you could say that. Following his baptism, Jesus is led by the same Holy Spirit that anointed him into the wilderness and the desert to be tempted by Satan. Now, let's talk a bit more. Let's zoom back from the story and talk a bit more about the significance of his baptism. And I would say it is a shining example of the great exchange. 
And I've mentioned that phrase before, and I think I borrowed it from someone, but I'd give it credit if I knew where, but I don't, so alas, we'll just have to go with it. Uh, The great exchange, God's grand yes to Jesus. It's an amazing thing to behold, and it's easy to stop there. But his affirmation becomes ours. Athanasius said he became like us, that we might become like him. His mission becomes ours, too. So with the baptism of Jesus, God is making it very clear, and I've said this before, that God has skin in the game, that he stands with us, that he is for us, that he'll cross the great divide between heaven and earth and life and death to make the great exchange. So we build on that a little bit. The baptism of Jesus is the beginning of the great exchange of his life for the life of the sinner, right? There's a trade that's going on. He is baptized on our behalf that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He's our substitute, okay? One author named Kistmaker says it this way, and this is rather poignant, but it gets the point across. The objection may be raised that the water of baptism symbolized the removal of filth, that is, sin, and as I said before, and that since Jesus was sinless, he did not need to be and could not properly be baptized. The answer is that he did, after all, have sin, namely ours, okay? So Jesus relinquishes his kingly honor to embrace and redeem our shame, okay? Jesus steps in on our behalf, and he lends us his righteousness by taking on our infirmities. Jesus took up our cause. That's the great exchange. And Jesus' assurance, we receive the same baptism that he does to remind us that we are engrafted into the body, okay? Romans 6, 4 says we're buried with him in baptism to rise to newness of life. So he volunteers to go above and beyond the law as a way to serve us, us, in obedience to the Father to show us unequivocally that he is in our corner. God has skin in the game, lending us his righteousness so that we can be made clean and new. That's the great exchange, okay? Tracking, does that make sense? See some head nods? Excellent. Uh, Let's wrap up here. We're going to work on closing. As I said before, epiphany is often connected with mission, okay, mission. And the baptism of Jesus is the real beginning of his ministry and mission. In his baptism, his life becomes ours, and his mission then becomes ours too. Does that make make sense? Yeah? Okay. So we're in the epiphany season, and we're beckoning called to reflect more mission. Okay, super. Uh, God's revelation of himself to the world and our part in that. What role do we have in that? So this is a great time, as I said before, to seek the Lord and ask, where are you moving and working, Lord? Where can we join you in those places where you're moving and working? That's mission. I love that our annual meeting's next week. It's fun. I love that it falls during the Epiphany season. Very fitting. Jesus' mission begins after his baptism. That's when things really get hopping in earnest. His ministry begins in earnest only after his baptism and only after his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. So we can learn a few things from this. And I'm just going to give you two easy points. How's that? One, uh, we never venture out on mission without the empowerment and the leading of the Holy Spirit. No way, Jose. Never. We never venture out on mission without the leading and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Our great ideas about mission and what we need to do in Charlotte and all that business, that amounts to a hill of beans without the Holy Spirit saying, go, this is what I want you to do, okay? So that's one. We don't venture out without that empowerment and without that leading. 
two. Notice what follows Jesus' baptism. What happens right after? He's driven into the wilderness by that same spirit to be tested and tempted okay, by the devil. So we can expect, this is two, we can expect to be tested and tempted along the way. The devil has it out for us too. Big time, okay? So if we're getting pushed back in the mission in which God has called us to, you know what that might mean? It might mean we're doing something right. It might mean we're doing something very right. The devil wants to spoil God's good gifts and his leading, okay? So one, we don't venture out on mission without the empowerment and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And two, we can expect opposition from the devil, okay? So, Uh, I'm going to leave us with this, and it's a simple question. Where is God leading King of Kings in 2019? Some of you may have been thinking about this. I don't know. Some of you may have been praying about this. I'm not sure. Vestry's been talking about this a lot, been praying about this a lot. Uh, Perhaps you have as well. I don't know. If not, I'd encourage you to actively entertain that question with some prayer and maybe even some fasting. Where is God leading King of Kings in 2019? And I'm going to leave us on a cliffhanger. I'm going to give you the whole tune in next week, you know, from the old TV shows. Tune in next week at our annual meeting to hear more about that. But in the meantime, let's live in that question as a family until next week, okay? And we'll be in that question together next week as well as a family, okay? Gather around God's table together. Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.